So you think yeah. 10 times the normal dose it is an egregious mistake. That is what you said. Yes. That's, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Especially, to, especially to the wrong patient. I mean, you can't do everything for everybody, but you know what? We can do a lot of it. Hello and welcome. Rick Bucata, Greg Henry here for the February 2021 issue of Risk Management Monthly. Uh, I'm in Scottsdale, Arizona, uh, and Greg is in uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan. Greg, how are you doing? Well, considering I'm in Ann Arbor, it's just fine. In case you've forgotten the eastern half of the United States, Rick, it's cold here this time of year. But go ahead. I don't want to tell you that was 82 here a couple days ago. I won't tell you. Don't make me tell you. Yeah, go ahead. I think we've got a good issue here. We've got a bunch of cases uh, we're going to do. We're going to do some also some uh, other things that were submitted uh, via uh, email to us. Yes. First up, Greg, you are going to talk about um, a email that somehow got lost from a fellow who writes f- pretty frequently, and I'm so I, so I shouldn't be offending this this nice guy. Right, right. Don't don't do that to paying customers, Rick. Uh, let me uh, let me talk about this case for a second, and the reason I'm anxious to talk about it is because I have been involved in a couple of these cases. Um, First of all, first of all, we're giving our apologies, but this has to do with what happens when groups change hands in various institutions. What happens to the medical legal situations? Whose insurance pays? This, that, and another thing. And we're going to go through a series of questions, which we're going to want you to ask if you're involved in joining a group, leaving a group, um, taking over a contract, and how we have to do this to make sure that everybody is uh, covered correctly. Uh, In this case, a physician works for a freestanding ED for a large healthcare system. The group who had had the uh, staffing contract was replaced by another and if you if this doesn't sound familiar, this sort of thing happens all the time. And uh, some of the doctors stayed on to work with the new organization. Others had left. The concern is this. The group that lost the contract may be going to file bankruptcy. Why that is, I have no idea and may not cover the tail coverage for the physicians who are remaining. Now, let's, let's go through this uh, sort of step by step, and let me warn you about a few things. If you're one of those physicians who thinks, I don't need an attorney to look at my contracts, you're an idiot. I'm going to take you out and beat you with a hose because the bottom line is this. You may be a great doctor, but you don't think like a lawyer. You don't. Even doctors who are lawyers don't actually think like lawyers. And you've got to to handle it down the road. What do I mean by this? I was involved and was an advisor 
in a case in the state of Ohio, which uh, will remain nameless at this moment, in which this exact same thing happened. The doctor who owned the contract, and he owned it as a single contract holder, uh, paid for the insurance policy for the group. And then two months into the uh, situation, he decided he could handle all this stuff personally, and he canceled the insurance policy and got a refund on the policy. So there you are, all these emergency physicians believe there is a policy in effect. Let's point out some things that are important. Number one, this gentleman did not send anyone a letter letting them know what he was doing. They were still under the misconception that they were covered by a general insurance policy. Bottom line, they were not. Now we're six months into this. He's gotten the cash back from the insurance policy. He finds out that he's going to be losing this contract. Some cases are filed, and when it actually comes down to it, there is no insurance uh, covering these patients, and the only insurance policy is the hospital. So what does the hospital decide to do since it's been bamboozled by this doctor? They decide to sue him criminally. He had an obligation to maintain this insurance policy. These other doctors are without uh, other insurance, uh, and the hospital has no interest in providing the first level of insurance for these doctors. So let me just tell you, these things do happen. Here's the, here's the warning that goes with this. If you have a brain in your head, you want to know what the insurance is. You as a physician need a copy of the insurance and the dates on those insurance, and it should be expressed somewhere that if there's any changes to the insurance, and there are legitimate reasons for changes on amounts of coverage, all that sort of thing, the physician needs to be informed so that they can make further decisions about their own financial situation and life. This, this is an ugly situation, Rick. And uh, let me tell you, this resulted, this Ohio case, can't refer to any other states, but I was an advisor on this case, and it became a criminal matter because they had not informed the physicians, and it was considered that the uh, physician who had the contract had an obligation to let them know that was going on. It was it was ugly, Rick. Go ahead. You know, you know that still sounds like it's a civil uh, affair rather than a criminal affair. Uh, but let's, getting back to the specifics of this case, this doctor who wrote wants to know, I don't think our former employer is going to be able to cover the tail, which he is obligated to do. And so we may not get a tail. Uh, and what are we supposed to do? How are, how are, should we have been notified or should we seek out notification? Uh, regarding these issues, do we call our broker and ask uh, whether 
what the issue is here. And, and But the fundamental question will be, how do they get their tail covered? Yes, uh, it, uh, all uh, perfectly legitimate questions. Number one, um, let's hope you had something in your contract where this person had to provide the insurance. And if insurance coverage changed, they had to notify you. Because if that exists, I would put him on notice now. You've got to remember that physicians uh, often have other assets. And uh, your attorney or the attorney for the doctors who are involved here should put him on notice uh, that he may have other problems coming up. Uh, physicians usually have assets, and those can be attached in this kind of case. Number two, if there's a third party, and there almost always is, a hospital involved, uh, the hospital has to cover a certain amount of, of any case that takes place on its premises. The hospital should be informed and notified of your concerns so the hospital can become your ally in dealing with this physician. I promise you the hospital does not want to sit there as the only person with money who's going to be paying uh, for, for this case or any cases that may come up. Um, and I, I think that any and all parties involved here need to be put on notice that you're going to take action and go back after that money. Well, uh, if there's no money to get, uh, there may be an issue. I think that um, when our group um, did a, a change, the incoming group, the incoming group uh, agreed to pick up the tail of the uh, of the doctors, which was really nice. Uh, they had probably a good deal on the insurance rates that they were getting, and they said, we'll cover your tail. So maybe in this situation, the new group for which these doctors are working could see that there's a problem brewing and say, we'll cover your tail. Um, kind of a generous thing to do, but there's many times uh, hospital groups need to be incentivized to bring on physicians. And one of the incentives could be, we'll pay your tail. Well, obviously, um, you cannot depend upon the largesse and goodwill of the hospital or anyone else involved here. If you're coming on, why would you take on somebody else's liability and have to pay those rates? I don't know why they would, but... <laughs> Let me just say, if you can get them to take it on, that's terrific. But if the physicians were actually treated uh, with uh, duplicity here and were not informed that there had been a cancellation or that there was no coverage, um, that, that, can, that can be a criminal as well as a civil offense and it depends on the state and how it was put forward. You know, fraud is still fraud. And in the Ohio case I mentioned, um, this was the part of the agreement here was the physician who, who committed the fraud was going to have to come up with the money uh, for them, for the state to drop 
the uh, the criminal action. You know, I did look up what the tail coverage would normally cost, and you probably have more experience with this than I, but the number I came up with was 200% of the annual premium. Yeah, it all depends on over how long a period of time it covers um, and and uh, that sort of thing. But you're right, Rick, it would be unusual to come uh, for it to be less money than that. I mean, it was very clear what happened in the case I was involved in. The physician canceled the insurance. And so the, the other 10 months of the year, he'd stuffed in his pocket and in an account <laughs> offshore. Um, and, you know, that's criminal activity. And, and you can, um, there are very few states where you, you cannot, you cannot uh, proceed on that basis. And the physicians in this case were in no mood to let that physician go. It did eventually get resolved without jail time for anyone. But uh, this physician had to go to the bank, borrow money, pay off the other docs who were involved. It was, let's say it was ugly uh, to the point of, 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 of practically revolutionary. It was not going to be good. Okay, let's move on to uh, MedMal Reviewer. Um, this is a service now put out by uh, Eric Funk where he presents cases uh, in detail where there is... Um, uh, the depositions are uh, available, and you can see what the experts are saying, et cetera. And right. these are multi-page uh, documents. Uh, he sent out a survey to his readers and got 678 people responding to the question, what would you rather have, a jury trial or a bench trial? A bench trial is where the judge basically is the judge and jury. Um, and and it was interesting. Um because 52% of the doctors who answered said they would prefer a bench trial, just the judge making the decision. When it turns out, and 14% said they would have a jury trial, and the rest, the rest didn't know. Um, a bench trial is the wrong answer. Uh, uh, Eric asserts that the likelihood of you getting a good outcome is twice as good if, as if you have a jury trial than a bench trial. Yes. And, and some and of the, some, <laughs> let, me, let me just tell you that everything in this case depends on the facts involved because as every uh, attorney will tell you, it depends on what jurisdiction you're in, the kind of judges who are there, you know, uh, uh, what has what brought them to the to the bench? There are all kinds of these situations which go on where there's no way in hell I would have uh, Wayne Wayne County in in Detroit uh, have have a judge decide my fate in 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 Saginaw County. I would only have the judges do it. They're different kinds of animals in those different jurisdictions. I don't think this is the kind of question you can answer without knowing who the judges are, how they got there, how this is going to play in the local court. Um, I don't think it's a simple question, Rick. 
And and to to think that we can answer this without further facts is is difficult. Well, you know, this is a generalization uh, in terms of the likelihood of right. you doing twice as well with the jury trial in terms of your outcome than than with the bench trial. And here's the theories. First of all, judges consider themselves as physician peers. Well, obviously that's wrong. You know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what the hell are you thinking about? And so they're not so impressed with being around doctors, you know, and and that's not good at all. Um, while jurors, on the other hand, are likely to hold physicians in high regard because they just know they just don't know any better. Right. Um, there's also the risk of randomness. You get a 50-50 chance here with this judge, while with a jury, you get 12 people that um, are basically going to you know, even out the chances of a kind of like, uh, it certainly won't be 50-50 flip of a coin. So that's kind of the, the risk of randomness is greater, he points out, with a uh, single judge versus a 12-person jury. So right, that's kind but, of but, good to know. But if you have a judge, um, it's yes or no, and and there is really no discussion about it. The other major problem in just having that judge I, I don't know whether he's up for reappointment, reelection, re this, re that. The one thing about a jury is it comes in to do its civic duty and then leaves. Uh, it does not view itself as having a continuity or owing to anyone. So be very careful before you think that a, a, a judge ought to give you a better a better deal or better look-see, because that ain't necessarily the case. Um, and this is where, if you're the physician, you better have attorneys who know that particular court, that parti those, those particular judges, and can give you some advice on this. If they've sat and, and passed out money before, you may not want them passing out your money this time. Uh, and that's that's why you get experienced lawyers who know a particular court. Well, that's uh, that seems like a reasonable explanation, Greg. Yeah. But but just going on the raw concept, it is preferable to look for the jury versus the judge only. Yeah. Uh, now all your nuances probably are the really the rate uh, the determining factors are you this is this is why uh, experienced attorneys in a not just in law but in a particular court are very very important to know about knowing the history of of jur of jurists and how they've decided in the past is extremely important Okay, Greg, let's move on to um, the next uh, item on the docket here. This is a journal that I just stumbled on called Clinical Practice and Cases in Emergency Medicine. Rick, uh, you've got to be the only guy I know who just stumbles on journals. I stumbled on well, it. I've I stubbed my around, toe on it. I've walked you know? around this house for 35 years. I've never stumbled on a journal, so go ahead. Well, listen, um, first of all, the name of the journal is almost a full sentence, Clinical Practice and Cases in Emergency Medicine. You think they could have kind of shortened that up a bit? You know? Yes. Yeah. Well, this Sounds is an online journal that 
is somehow connected to the Western Journal of Emergency Medicine. The Western Journal of Emergency Medicine uh, used to be a California ASEP uh, publication, and it like struggled and it didn't do well. But then uh, UC Dave, uh, UC Irvine picked it Irvine. up. Irvine, yes. UC Irvine uh, created the Western Journal of Emergency Medicine into a really terrific journal. It has a lot of original uh, studies that are there, and it's like when you watch it on your computer, you're, you can physically almost turn the page. They've got this software that makes it look like you're actually reading a journal. But in any case, I wanted to give a shout out to the folks that put the Western Journal of Emergency Medicine together for the fine work that they have done, and also to acknowledge this journal that they're somehow affiliated with. I think it even may be theirs, but clinical practice in case of emergency medicine. This is... Um, Something I found, the, the October 20th issue of this journal had three kidney stone cases. And oddly enough, Greg Moore, uh, our colleague who has been on the show a bunch of times, is one of the four authors of this paper on these three kidney stone-related cases. And Melanie Hennef, who Greg was also on uh, Risk yes. Management Monthly with uh, Greg Moore, um, who's an MDJT, is the section editor. And I was going to call up uh, Greg to find out something a little bit more about Melanie. Uh, I was going to call me up yesterday. This morning, this morning, out of the blue, I received a text from Greg Moore, who had just landed here in Phoenix and was visiting a, a friend, um, and was going back to Washington this afternoon. And so we weren't going to have an opportunity to get together, but it's like talk about coincidence. In any case, I'm setting this journal up. We're gonna go there and go back to the well because apparently there's a whole bunch of cases that they've done. Uh, this journal began in 2017. So uh, it's gonna be uh, like a, uh, a treasure trove of great cases. Well, yes. in any case, let's pick up on the first of these three kidney stone cases. Greg, you've got number one. Okay. Um, you're going to find that this is a popular age for kidney stone cases. A 49-year-old man uh, is, is uh, coming in uh, with uh, ureteral colic. Uh, CT reveals uh, stones in both kidneys and one ureter. Uh, that doesn't sound like a good situation, does it, Rick? I mean, this doesn't sound good. The well, radiologist uh, uh, also noted a large mass of blood clot in the bladder. The patient was advised to follow up with a urologist in three to five days. I can't believe the emergency physician did not make a call to this urologist. I can't believe that, right? I, I, I can't. Well, what about, go. Telling, what about telling the patient? Do you think well, that would well, be a good that, idea? That would be a good idea, too. The patient was advised to follow up. Uh, a return visit uh, is essentially set up, The but the... Um, it just so happens that the blood in this uh, person's bladder uh, wasn't probably from the stone, 
but from their uh, your uh, their bladder tumor, um, and and that had been essentially noted on a CT a year prior. The patient and the de- and the uh, defendant got into a he said she said as they always do in court. Was I told this? Wasn't I told that? All that sort of thing. Uh, unfortunately. Um, this uh, accounted to a $10 million loss to the insurance company of the physician for not having uh, had the patient follow through and uh, and uh, see a urologist. Well, it wasn't documented in the chart by the emergency physician, which is kind of like, what are you thinking about? Right. And But I think even more interestingly, in this case, the suggestion by the radiologist that this was a a, a blood clot in the bladder. Uh, since when do radiologists do histological evaluations of tissue? Yeah, I, I, this this is this a very strange yeah. case, Rick. The well, but, but but the first place where it's strange is um, when, at least in my career, pretty much. When I see stones and a mass in the bladder, I tend to call a urologist who then, these days, they look at it at home on their screen and tell you what they're going to do and when they're going to do it and the fact that they're on their way in. Um, This, to me, seems to be a no-brainer that should never have been missed. Well, this is one of those classical cases a year later this guy goes back and has another CT, and the and the blood clot in the bladder has has remained, but now it's called an invasive tumor. Tumor, yes. Can you exactly. imagine? I don't know what the outcome was in this case because um, they didn't say what the outcome was, but ten million dollars, maybe, maybe the person died or something. That's that's a lot of money, um, but in any case. This is this is this is this is nauseatingly recur, um, recurring problem that we uh, talk about. All of these, you know, failure to pick up uh, these incidental abnormalities, which we'll talk about a little bit more, and yeah. have a way to you know record them and and follow them up and do this in a non-random manner. So anyway, that's number one. This is about the bladder tumor that was. Seen but not commented on and not documented on a year later, it is worth obviously ten million. Number two, forty-nine-year-old woman, she's the same age as the guy yes. above, with abdominal pain and a CT scan was diagnosed uh, showed a obstructing kidney stone. Okay, UA was ordered by the emergency physician, um, but it was never done. And the patient was discharged by the emergency physician, who actually knew that the UA hadn't been done. This sounds like me, Greg, because I'm going to talk about this slightly. But yeah, the uh, patient obviously presented a second time. Uh, the interim between the initial visit and the subsequent visit are not stated, and died three days later of urosepsis. Mm. Uh, the uh, Plaintiff's attorney asserted that a UA is required for the proper management of a kidney stone. Uh, we'll talk about that in a second, too. In our uh, interview with Dave Tallon, 
Dave has stressed the importance of getting a UA and treating with antibiotics, even if there are no symptoms of a UA, but the UA is consistent with an infection. Yes, it, it, exactly. I mean, I think David is absolutely right with this. Um, you will remember <laughs> that I presented uh, with a with a uh, stone and an infection and all that sort of stuff. I think you came to visit me at that time, Rick. Uh, you and deathbed, I think. What? You were on your deathbed. I was on my I was deathbed. Give you the last rites. Right, exactly. And and the bottom line of, of that visit was I went from from uh, talking to people to being in coma in about uh, two hours, and they had to they had to go in after the um, the stone and let the infection out and all that kind of stuff. Uh, why you wouldn't with an obstructing stone? Uh, check the urine or have the urologist make the decision about how they wanted to drain that. I have no idea. But there's no evidence uh, in looking at this case, Rick, that the urologist was ever involved in the decision making. Well, why would a urologist be involved when there's no evidence of a problem here other than a resolving kidney stone? I mean, they, they, <laughs> yeah. they, they don't know that there's an infection. Well, be calling anybody about well, they don't know that yet, but I, I can't picture a urologist who's going to not want to know what the urine has to show. I mean, it's what they do, Rick. It's the well, only must, thing they do. I must admit, in my younger days, there were, you know, sometimes this diagnosis of a kidney stone was so easy to make. Right. Right. You know, the, the characteristic of the pain, you would get a urine, you were dip it as it was a cold blood positive kind of thing. It's yeah. like done out. You know, why would you send it over for a micro urinalysis? I, you know, it was like, that's just kind of wasting money. We know the diagnosis. Thank or you a culture, much. right? And yeah, I was exactly. never kind of aware of the potential concomitant diagnosis of a UTI. I was, I was a sinner. And I'm confessing right in front of you all that I really didn't put much, I didn't do it. You know, yeah. it just was in and out. Thank you very much. Yep. Um, but well, now it, I'm. This didn't I, go I, well. This didn't go well for the doctors in this case, Rick. Uh, this was uh, $2.6 million. Yeah, I've and, changed my tune, that's for sure. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't sound to me like uh, this, is a, uh, this is a good way to go. All right, let's look at case number three here. Greg, that's yours. Oh, all righty. A 35-year-old uh, female present with back pain, and a CT reveals a kidney stone, and UA is consistent with a UTI. Is there anything hard here? I mean, I don't know whether they've had previous stones, that sort of thing at this moment in time, but if you've got an infection and a stone, this sounds to me like referral to urology that night or that day or whatever they came in to have this work done. Would you think that anything else ought to be done, Rick? He says Well, that I think that you're going to have to take some action. You can talk to the urologist all you want, but somebody's going to have to. The whole point here is that if you have UA evidence of an infection, sure. independent of the clinical findings uh being absent for an infection, you need to treat the infection. Yes. The, o the, the only reason to check with the urologist is what's being currently given that week, 
what is their your uh, your their antibiotic of choice to start with, but that's what you're calling for. It's not to wh- whether it's going to be given. It's just which one, and uh, when is the urologist going to see the patient? The uh, the patient underwent, um, I- I- at least in this case, uh, did not do well, and I think the uh, bottom line here is. If you've got a patient with a stone, with an infection, what are you doing not treating it in the emergency department? Although it was uh, it was substantially worse. Uh, the pharmacy was closed when the patient was discharged. And the next morning, she was found confused and was transported to the emergency department in septic shock, where after a two-week stay involving the amputation of both feet and one hand, the patient was discharged. Um, the plaintiff asserted it had not been communicated the importance of filling the antibiotic, while the defense claimed the patient was negligent in not getting her meds. You, you know, how many times would you work in the evening shift knowing the local pharmacy was closed and you were giving prescriptions for this kid's runny nose or this or that kind of thing, yeah. and they, they weren't going to get it? And yeah. it was like, our hospital was really very enlightened. Uh, they were actually breaking the rules, I think, to a certain extent. But they would fill prescriptions for the patient, uh, yep. which they're not allowed to do. Uh, but every ER can give you the first dose in the department kind of thing. That's, uh, you know, you can give out a, a couple of pills and uh, of whatever the antibiotic du jour is, and that would be a good start. And then you can say, listen, you got to get this filled in the morning. Um, and... Make yeah, it clear I, that you got to do this. Yeah, I don't understand exactly why they would not give the IV. The one thing about the IV dose, and in most of these patients with uh, urosepsis, uh, they're sick, they're nauseated, they have trouble getting things down. Give it to them IV in the department uh, and then get them started on something else if you want to. But this is a... Uh, this is an unusual case. It, it, well, uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't think it's unusual at all. She had no symptoms of a UTI at all. She wasn't sick. She had pain. They, that, that got treated. The uh, UA was basically not appreciated. But the fact is, is that it doesn't matter, apparently, whether the people act sick or have signs of a UTI other than the UA that Basically, I think what these cases are saying is you should treat these cases with antibiotics. Um, yes. And yes. she had a horrible outcome. And the- but, but the bottom line here is if, if you're going to treat somebody with a urinary tract infection, you know, make sure they get their first dose of antibiotics. Uh, if you have to give it to them IV, you just give it to them IV. I think a lot of people who listen to the program work at places which are uh, which may be a little more rural where they may not have a pharmacy open that night but they always have antibiotics in the emergency department and you can you can pretty much start them at that moment in time you know absolutely this also kind of comes down to little kids if you believe that a little kid should have um, their uh, amoxicillin syrup and uh, it's 11 o'clock well, then have the pharmacy make up the amoxicillin syrup and 
and properly label it and give it to the kids. Say, here's your first dose in the emergency department and take this home, uh, will you? Uh, it's like, make it happen. Yeah, and, and, uh, and I, I, I don't understand why you wouldn't. The uh, most places have got it set up so that your first six doses of medication can be dispensed right from the emergency department and um, and uh, given on the way out the door, the first doses and the first two in the morning, and they can get in and be reseen. And it's just, it's just not that hard a thing to do. Greg Moore and his colleagues uh, go into discussion of two things. First of all, they're going to go into discussion of incidental findings on CTs in the emergency department. They point out a study that was done in 2011 by Thompson et al. that found that 33% of emergency department CTs had incidental findings, but that the patients were advised of those findings in only 10% of the cases. Good Lord. Now, that was 2011. This is 2000. That's 10 years ago. Right. I would hope by now that that kind of thing is not happening because this is just it's like a slam dunk screw up. Yeah. Hold hold on just a second. It all depends on what the incidental finding is. I mean, you and I have all seen uh, small findings, um, you know, uh, ancient bone cyst or something like that. We've all seen a finding which the patient doesn't need to know that now, night. But uh, then you have those that we don't know what we're going to do with. And that's a different situation, Rick. You, you, you and I have to admit that we sent people home with uh, uh, strange findings or chronic findings on an X-ray, which, which we never went over with the patient. And this you just is got different. damn lucky that it wasn't a problem, frankly. It was not because yeah. you were so smart. It was just that you were lucky. Yes, um, it, it, that may be the case, right? I always liked it, by the way, when a patient would tell me, oh, by the way, every time they shoot a picture of this, they tell me I have that. Oh, good. That's nice. It's nice to know. Well, you still story. have it. Yeah, yes. Yeah, you still have it. Exactly. You know, they, they uh, quoted another study that gets to the point that you were talking about. 848 CTs in a trauma center found that there were incidental findings in 45%. Now, the first study was 33%. This is 45% of incidental findings. Now, they rated the significance of these incidental findings. Some were clearly uh, nothing, ditzels, just as you had mentioned. Others were, so there was a ranking of them. Uh, only 15 of the 31 findings thought to warrant attention prior to discharge Prior to discharge, Greg, yeah. only 15 of the 31 were dealt with with regards to acknowledgement and doing what they're supposed to do. Half the cases that, that, that had findings that needed to be dealt with that night were not dealt with. Yeah. Documentation, I, uh, they suggested documentation uh, like x-ray discrepancy discussed. My view is that that's probably not as good as you would like. I would think I'd like to say, what did, whom are you going to ask them to follow up with? Very, very specific. And what time frame? Are yeah, you even better, ask? Rick, is if it is something you're not sure about, make a phone call, speak to the urologist, speak or speak to the, the specialty involved, see what they want to convey to the patient. That's the way you get this thing done is you let 
he let the specialist who's going to be involved know they're calling in the morning and then hear what they have to say. You know, I, I used to learn a lot from the other specialties, talking to them on the phone. And, uh, and we really did get better. We really did give better care if you spoke to the physician who was going to see them, Rick, because if they needed another study, they needed this or that, we got it done before the patient even showed up. Well, you know, I think that that's uh, probably true, but I also believe that you have an obligation to advise the patient of these abnormal findings. You, right. Talking to some doctor who about them without telling the patient what we're talking about is not uh, uh, I, I don't think proper. I think they, you need to say, we, there's some incidental findings here. I've discussed these with Dr. So-and-so. He's going to follow it up uh, with you. It's important that you be seen within the next X. And so we know who's going to follow. We're going to know when's going to follow. And you've talked to the patient as well as this doctor. Yeah. By the way, uh, something I, I had come back at least a few times in the last uh, month or two was in elderly patients who have gone in uh, to get their, um, their COVID shots, that sort of thing, write down somewhere who was with them. Because you can, the average 82-year-old or 85-year-old may not remember everything that was said, like when they're supposed to come back, when they're supposed to have other things done. Uh, I think following this chain of who's taking some responsibility really is important. And, uh, you know, I got to see that at the COVID clinic. It was, uh, it was uh, something to watch. There's a fair number of older patients out there who do need our assistance. Did you get a shot, Greg? Yes, I've gotten a shot, Rick. I've gotten, well, I've gotten shot one and in and uh, three weeks through some private doctor or the state well th no this this was arranged through my uh, my uh, hospital and uh, but but it was it, again now the elderly uh, whether they've got a major underlying disease or not are, are lining up and uh, it's it it's going okay well, California is an utter mess. And we're talking on January 21st, and California is, my wife tried to get an appointment in California. No way. She got an appointment here in Arizona for her shot, yeah. but not mm -hmm. in California. It is so screwed up. Well, anyway, it's, it's moving, absolutely, moving on. It's absolutely uh, <coughs> county by county here in Michigan. So <laughs> we have people who in uh, Wayne County area uh, who own houses, you know, uh, summer places up north. Um, you're familiar with those, Rick. Uh, they, they've signed up in these northern, northern uh, counties to get their shots only because they can get in line faster. You know, um, in this... Um, issue, Greg and his colleagues also talk about imaging or lab findings that are abnormal but are found after the patient is discharged. Right. Um, you know, we've seen uh, those, uh, and they basically say that uh, obviously you should convey the information, and and it gets into the same thing. They they say you should get the follow up doctor to know about it. But I thought 
uh, thought also that you should get the patient to know. And yes. the patient should acknowledge that they know because you're sending letters or emails or something to the patient, which is a one-way communication. And you're just kind of assuming that they're landing. So right. I would like to have, or a phone call, uh, and you're not able to get them, and there's an answering machine. You, you remember what those are, Greg? Answering yes, machines. yes. Yes, they do. Let let me say, there's nothing as useful as having a note. Um, Because, you know, the next day we would go over anything sent down uh, by radiology that they picked up that you may have missed, that sort of thing, is to have an actual note that says, spoke with patient um, at this hour, this time. They were told to do this, to do that. I've never seen one of those cases become a problem. It's when you don't talk to the patient or or their family and get it taken care of. Uh, it, that's still the best way to do it. Greg, in this paper, they had some discussion about uh, infections in kidney stone patients as well. And since you're uh, personally uh, experienced an infection in the of kidney <laughs> yes, stone, you're I the am. expert in this. So yeah. why don't you review what uh, Greg Moore and his colleagues had to say about infections with kidney stones? Uh, Let me help you out there, Greg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he said, uh, Greg and his colleagues said 8% of kidney stones had concomitant UTIs. Uh, and the urine may not look particularly bad. And I never thought about this, but he said, you know, the infection may be proximal to the stone, and just a little bit of that dirty urine is being getting through, and it's being diluted down without all the urine that's coming out of the, the normal kidney. So you may not be so impressed by the UA because you really haven't gotten a good look at what is happening above the stone where that infection is. Yeah, I, and I'm not sure that uh, Greg's got any information or data that says... Uh, a little infection and a lot of infection are that much different because it obviously depends on the time you pick up the problem. And so if there's anything that says infection, it's infected and you have to follow up with it, Rick. You know, I think that's a good point. It's yeah. like, uh, <laughs> it doesn't mean <laughs> it's like a, a, a little, little infection or a lot of infection. infection. Yeah, probably doesn't make a lot of difference. So anyway, these guys and Dave Town and everybody says you should initiate antibiotic therapy when your UA is consistent with infection. Uh, you know, we like ceftriaxone. It lasts uh, for, you know, 24 hours if you got it. An IV started in these patients because they were vomiting or you wanted to rehydrate them or or the like, then it's not unreasonable to give a, that IV because, you know, why would you want to give a shot in the butt when, in fact, you, you've got to put it in the vein because you already got an IV there running? Right, exactly. The other issue that came up here is, in the one case, the patient never got their antibiotics filled um, that night. Well, maybe they could. Maybe there was a 24-hour pharmacy. Maybe they didn't make the effort. Maybe they said, I'm too tired. I'm just going to go home, and I'll do it in the morning. And so it brings up the idea here of contributory negligence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've discussed this b- before, but let's just go over it briefly again. It, you know, the idea of contributory negligence is applicable in four states in the District of Columbia. 
they have pure contrib the pure quote unquote contributory negligence, which means that if the patient was responsible for any portion of the bad outcome, they can't collect any money. If right. you're respond if you're one percent of the bad outcome is your your fault because you didn't speed to the pharmacy, you took a you went to the regular <laughs> regular then that you don't you don't get anything. Right. Uh, and states basically, other states say, you know, that's not really fair. And obviously it's not, but these states, you know, they got bad laws. So yeah. they, they have two other concepts here. Instead of just contributory negligence, they have what's called comparative fault. Right. And and pure comparative fault, when that occurs, the award is based on the, on the comparative fault of the patient. So it could be 15%, 20%, 80%, 100%, 100%, of that. That's what you get. You get uh, the, the portion that you are not responsible for. Some, somebody has to assign fault. You need medical experts, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And the, prob the problem with contributory um, as opposed to an absolute uh, negligence is there's going to be a fight. Uh, well, let's say the damages are uh, $10 million. Okay, we'll just, we're only 10% responsible, so we'll take a million dollars. It always becomes that kind of argument. I think it's, I think as an emergency doc, bottom line is this, if you can uh, make point A and point B line up with each other for the patient, set up the visit, set up this, set up that, you're always going to come out better in front of a jury. I mean, you can't do everything for everybody, but you know what? We can do a lot of it. And the uh, the bottom line is, again, watching this COVID uh, show go on, um, there are a lot of older patients, um, and now I'm part of that group, that uh, aren't are a little confused as to when they're coming back, when they're doing things. The simpler you can make it, and the more you can turn it over to somebody else, the better off you are. Um, that's that's why when you see a couple, an elderly couple come in, somebody's always more alert than the other one. Make sure they, they understand <laughs> as well uh, when it happens. I, I, I mean, I just have to admit it. That uh, now, you know, my wife's going to be involved in that discussion, and there's nothing I'm going to do to stop it, and it's a good thing. So when Diane and I have to go see a doctor, somebody has to decide which one of us is the more, more competent of the two. <laughs> exactly <laughs> right. Uh, and, yeah. and I, I, you know, there's a, we, we've seen an interesting shift in healthcare, and everybody has noticed it that as, as the population of the United States has gotten older, on average, the number of elderly patients who live with their children or their grandchildren, where that was very common 100 years ago, now it's not common. And somebody has to be in charge of taking care of these patients. And it's, it's often very difficult uh, to get somebody who's responsible. So I'm going to finish this uh, little section here because basically it's talking about, we talked about pure contributory negligence where you get the percentage that you were uh, not responsible for, but they also have this thing called pure comparative fault based on the comparative fault of the patients. 
modified comparative fault. The catch this, damages can be recovered only if the plaintiff is considered 50% or less responsible for the negative outcome. Right. Uh, that's modified comparative fault. There's another version of that. Some states use a 51% rule. No damages can be collected if the patient is 51% or more responsible. Right. You know, that doesn't sound kosher. Well, it, it's it's a very difficult question. And having sat through several of these trials uh, for emergency physicians, if you tell somebody and write down, you're going to be seen tomorrow at two o'clock in the afternoon by Dr. Smith, and they don't show up, whose fault is that? Uh, and then the arguments come up. Well, did you really impress upon that? How sick they could get, yada, yada. I, I never think it's a simple question. Uh, and it, it's one where, where the jury can view it many different ways, Rick. Okay, let's move on to uh, Chuck Pilcher's medical management, uh, me medical malpractice insights. This is a free uh, newsletter that uh, you can get. Uh, we've talked about how you get access in the past. Uh, let's do, now he did a bunch of cases and I've just chosen a few here. In November of 2020, uh, he did one case that I, that, let me see here. Which I'm going to review this case. Yeah, this is, uh, this is a good case. This is a 78 year old neurologist. Yes. <laughs> yes. A neurologist presents to the emergency department of an unfamiliar hospital uh, with neck pain and numbness and tingling in both arms after a 15-mile bike ride that he had done a day or so before. And I guess the idea is that when you're riding a bike, you're kind of hunched over and you're looking forward, and so your neck is, uh, you know, extended, and so that was kind of like the rationale for why this patient had a problem. Unfortunately, right. he had a history of uh, prior spine infections. We'll stop here. You know the diagnosis. Yes. You know the diagnosis. <laughs> he had a very incomplete examination uh, documented by what it was called a spine specialist in the uh, that hospital. Um, and the neurologist noted all the things that this spine specialist did not do as part of a neurologic examination. God. Yes. Um, the uh, physician requested an MRI of his neck. Uh, and uh, them, it demonstrated arthritis, cord compression, and a mass behind the spinal col column read as a blood clot. This is, again, the radiologists are doing histological diagnosis. They, they can tell you what the, what the pathology of the tissue is back there. Right. Good job. Well, Good job. obviously we got a question about a, a blood clot. I think that if you get a report like this, now we have two cases this month where they said it was a blood clot and they were very, very wrong. So when you get that report, if somebody gives you a report of a blood clot, it's like, you know, just erase that out of your mind. This is just considered a mass, a mass of undetermined etiology. Well, um, the other thing is, whether it's a blood clot or whether it's an abscess or whatever it is, I think you have to go back to the initial physical examination. What did they find and what could be the causes? And in this, in this case, compression of the spinal cord is not a good thing, is not a good thing, Rick. 
Uh, and partic particularly when your patient is a neurologist, you'd like to have done a pretty good neuro exam and made a pretty good differential diagnosis, I'm afraid. Well, I think that many people think that ordering a neuro exam is ordering an MRI. Performing a neuro exam is ordering an MRI. Yeah, no, <laughs> That's it's it. not. It's, um, it's, it's not. In this case, white blood count and inflammatory markers were elevated, but the patient was not informed, which is really strange because you would think the doctor would say, well, what's the results of my tests? Right. And the patient was discharged, discharged with follow-up with the spine surgeon within two weeks. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, because of persisting symptoms, two days later, the patient pulls up on his computer the results of his blood tests because uh, he's in this patient portal thing and the hospitals are all connected. And he right. sees that his lab tests are abnormal. And because he was still not feeling good, he went to his own hospital where better doctors checked him out, admitted him, and did uh, cervical spine uh, surgery to relieve this abscess that had formed back there. Yep. Uh, so this sounds like it's kind of be a you know, a, a nasty case. But here's the interesting part of this whole thing here. The patient didn't want to sue. The guy's 78. What is he going to do with the money? Um, <laughs> you can't ask that question, Rick. He wanted yeah. the hospital staff to learn from the experience and take action so that others wouldn't have to deal with this missed spinal epidural abscess kind of thing. So that was his intent. The problem was that the hospital's communication and resolution program, you know that these are the programs that if you get any complaint, they're advised, they know how to apologize, they know how to make offers of compensation, they, right. they, they take over this whole matter so that you try to avert any kind of litigation. Well, these people didn't tell the communication and resolution people about this, uh, for actually, they found out 10 months later. In the meantime, the neurologist who had been injured had sent multiple letters to the hospital, but the hospital refused to acknowledge culpability or apologize. Hmm. You know, it's like, what are they thinking about? What are they thinking? Right, um, exactly. And you, you can rest assured that the neurologist's attorney was willing to accept some of that money. And uh, it would uh, it would be very strange. Yeah. So the suit didn't occur, but the whole purpose of the uh, conflict resolution department there was circumvented by these guys to the dismay of the patient, because the patient would like one number one an apology, and never got one, or at least didn't get one for a you know better part of a year, mm -hmm. and and he wanted people to learn about what happened so it wouldn't happen to others. The hospital dodged a big, big, big bullet here. And in the idea of apology, you know, we've talked about apology over and over and over again, and you know, what states allow it and, and what's all these apology laws that exist. Right. Um, it's like everything that could go wrong for this neurologist did go wrong. I think it's an example of what happens when doctors become patients? Yes, if it could go wrong, it did go wrong and uh, should be taken care of. You know, I think that uh, before any patient like this gets going, 
uh, somebody who got one of his letters, his first letter, should have it should have been seen by somebody who would ask a question. A, this is a doctor who kind of understands what happened to him here. Uh, what are we going to do about this? Uh, I mean, that's that's not right. Some, somebody should have intervened on this who um, who could make him happy. And sometimes the question works. I, I've, I've, when I was chief of the department, I would occasionally, with patients who were very upset, say, what would make you happy? What can we do to make this better? And we actually had a couple who said, well, I want to come to your staff meeting and tell them how I felt or this, that, or another thing. And you know what? We did, and they didn't sue us. Uh, that's okay. And if if you have to do that a few times, that's not a bad thing to do, Rick. Well, I think more and more hospitals are having uh, departments of communication and uh, resolution kind of thing who where the people really know how to handle this uh, these situations are much more tactful. And this um, this this failure to turn it over to this group was really very culpable, I thought. Greg, I'm watching the clock. We uh, I'd like to get done our next two cases, um, if we could, like, pronto quicko. Can we uh, start with um, this one about, uh, let's see, oh, yeah, the guy who robs a gas station. <laughs> Oh God! Why, why, why is it that that we we find it uh, uh, unusual or something that somebody robs a gas station, a um, an adult male uh, with uh, prior arrests? Funny about that. Robs a gas station and runs into a nearby house, and uh, when the police arrive, he is uh, he is behaving violently and uh, cuts his wrists with a box cutter knife. You know, I think all crime in America is due to box cutter knives. It's exactly what they used. And uh, bottom line is, uh, he is is, uh, obviously not right. He's cutting himself. Only hours later, uh, when his um, sitter, wait a second. Yeah, he's he's uh, done in what they call 50, 5150. He's committed in in this hospital. In he the hospital, sitter right? Who uh, basically falls asleep. It's the same sitter who fell asleep during the Epstein thing, you know. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> in the same family. And, yeah. uh, and again, and the, the guy elopes from the hospital two hours after he gets uh, put in. Yes. And uh, he, eleven days later. Randomly shoots into a crowd and kills a teenager. The uh, parents of the teenager are want to sue the hospital, but unfor- but unfortunately, the judge grants a motion of uh, summary judgment. And despite the fact that parents um, um, appealed, uh, they lost. And the issue here was that um, the hospital said that there was no propensity to violence. Well, he, that's why he was in the place, because he was violent. Not, so they said there's no propensity to violence, which I don't think is true. And there was no specific uh, third party name. You know, this uh, idea of, of, of singling out uh, a third party who is going to be harmed by this patient. Right. right. Patient, well, we've, future, we've talked about that many times. Right? Yes. The fact that there is a predicted but not named third party. 
if we allow people to do things, if you take somebody who has just had a seizure or you've just treated with uh, large doses of uh, pain medication and you allow them to drive, there is, a, there is going to be a, an unnamed but uh, predicted third party who may be hurt. So the, the third party idea uh, all depends on the state and the jurisdiction you're in, Rick. You know, the hospital said the patient's future violent behavior was unforeseeable. And this is what made the case about why this was dismissed. I think, you know, I thought a good case could be made that the hospital was negligent in not properly observing the patient and letting the patient escape without a psychiatric assessment regarding whether they were uh, violent or suicidal or not. And... Um, Listen, I've I've had cases where where the where the question went down to what did they do to observe this patient? What did they do to secure their safety? Uh, you can't do everything, but did they did they uh, put a sitter? Uh, did they uh, have the patient restrained? Did they give medications? All these sorts of things could be part of the discussion. I don't think it's a simple question in this case uh, as, as to whether that patient constituted a danger to himself or other people, because he probably constituted a huge danger to himself as well. Uh, and we, we just can't tell by the way this is handled. So the patient eloped because the sitter fell asleep. And yeah. uh, the question is, what efforts were made to uh, find the patient? Were the hospital guards asked to go and look at the look on the campus about the, whether they see anybody in a in a gown? And I have seen those cases where it wasn't whether w did they do it, did they ever write it down? Was it recorded anywhere? It, there's nothing as useful as saying notified security, have searched the grounds, we notify sure. the local police, all those things that show that you took some interest in a patient who's potentially dangerous. And whenever that happens, the doctors and the hospital do better because it shows that somebody cared or understood what was going on here. Okay, okay, last case of the uh, issue. This is a nursing home case uh, where a nurse gave 120 milligrams of morphine to the wrong patient. Uh, That's a big dose, Rick. Yeah, this was supposed to be for some terminal patient. Uh, it was the wrong patient. But so the wrong patient got all this morphine and uh, the patient was given naloxone and responded. Uh, and was observed for a while, but when, after the change of shift, they literally stopped observing the patient. And uh, in the morning, the patient was found uh, comatose. Right. And didn't do well thereafter. And the issue here was the concept of ordinary negligence. This is a mistake that is so obvious that anyone would concede that that this is an obvious mistake. You don't need any medical experts to say that this was a, uh, a mistake and having the battle of the experts. This was just an egregious mistake. So you think uh, 10 times the normal dose 
it is an egregious mistake. That is what you're saying. <laughs> yes. that, that, that's what I'm saying. Yes. Yeah. Especially, yeah. To, especially to the wrong patient. Yeah, to the wrong yeah. patient. Yeah. What What is amazing is knowing the half-life of the drug, why that they were not receiving naloxone drip, you know, over, over six or eight hours um, to try and keep them keep them from succumbing to the to the morphine well they, they in these cases they they uh, this they say in these cases plants can take the position that there's no need for expert testimony because a medical malpractice case is not being sought we don't want to do a malpractice case we want to do an ordinary negligence case ordinary negligence your Insurance company, you bought malpractice insurance. You didn't buy, buy ordinary negligence insurance, by the way. Yes. Um, capsule malpractice judgment, uh, uh, malpractice judgment may apply. I don't know what that, that particularly means here, but the, the idea is that Chuck advises um, Chuck Pilcher um, know how your uh, malpractice co- uh, policy is going to deal with claims of ordinary negligence. It seems that the key would be to make a convincing case that malpractice was in fact performed. You know, no, no, no this wasn't ordinary negligence. Our doctors were terribly, you know, <laughs> malpractice. That, right, that's right. what we want here. Yeah. So that exactly. your insurance company and, will cover. And by the way, having run an insurance company, let me just say that everyone immediately checks their own position. For example, who gave the medication? What nurse actually drew up that much um, uh, now, uh, uh, Narcan or whatever the or the uh, the morphine, morphine to do that? Um, who wrote the order for that much? I mean, there are a lot of people involved in this one, Rick. Uh, when you give ten times the normal dose of a drug, there's the agent of the hospital. The, the maybe the pharmacy is involved. Where in the world would anybody would you find a nurse who'd given 120 milligrams of morphine? I just I don't know where you'd find one. Uh, and then if the physician actually wrote that down, when's the last time he or she wrote for that kind of medication? I think this is a complex case where there could be a lot of negligence involved. And uh, to, I, I, I think they actually um, may be wrong here in that you don't need to, to go the, the, the route of uh, negligence, uh, because I think, I think this is negligent. This is, but, but they considered this so egregious that it was in the category of Anybody would say, yes, that's screwed up. This is ordinary negligence. And if it is ordinary negligence, one of the things that I um, misread here is, so your malpractice insurance company doesn't cover this because they don't cover ordinary negligence. They cover malpractice. And the other thing is, is that the caps on pain and suffering, those kinds of things, they don't apply in ordinary negligence uh, cases. It's like right. the sky's the limit. Right, exactly. And I, I think one would be would make a mistake in thinking, well, we'll just handle this like it's so obvious 
it's clear and obvious we don't have to. No, they should go through the stages here and and get this done correctly, present it correctly to the uh, to the jury. And because there's more than one person's negligence involved here who drew up the medication, who gave the medication, who monitored the medication. They're saying too it many didn't matter. questions. It was yeah. it was screwed up badly. Yes. We don't care who did it. It's yep. obvious. And, um, and my advice would be they go through the stages and do it right. I want to do a quickie here. Um, Kenny Todd, who is uh, MDJD uh, in Texas, who has been on our program and who's recorded a bunch yes. of cases uh, and, and, and rulings to us, sent us a case where a RN family nurse practitioner, DNP, doctor of uh, nursing practice person, agreed with the uh, Medical Board of Texas to cease and desist calling themselves a doctor. Um, the DNP agreed to not refer to herself as a doctor or physician in any manner unless she also designated the authority under which the title issued or the college or honorary degree that gives rise to it. But she could not uh, basically say that she was um, a, a doctor. If she wanted to say a doctor, she says, yes, I'm a doctor of, in a doctor in nursing practice. Right. Uh, Rick, this isn't going to go away. Uh, we've been talking about this over the last 13 years. As soon as you have a practitioner who shows up in someone's room, what does that patient think they are? A doctor unless they're disavowed of that idea, uh, people think that they are doctors. And now that we have doctors of nursing, doctors as of this or that, um, I, think, I think it is important that we at least be honest with the patients as to what people's training uh, is. Our friend uh, Randy Danielson, who is a PA extraordinaire, uh, in a review that we did in December of 2019, um, it was noted that Arizona and Delaware have laws that forbid use of the term in a matter to this uh, Texas law that was broken here. Um, I think that's it. I think it's time for wine of the month. Greg, what do you have? Well, we've got one called Hunchback, and uh, this is going to be California. It's a red, but unlike most of the wines we discuss on this program, this is a blend of multiple grapes. In, the, in California, the law says you can't call something a Pinot Noir or, or a Cabernet Sauvignon unless it's 51% of those grapes. So you have plenty of wet red wines that come out of California where they've taken less than that uh, and blended them together to make a table red, a, 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 a vin rouge ordinaire, as the French would say, and they're excellent. Um, we uh, we uh, tasted for this program uh, a, a Hunchback California Red, uh, which is just terrific. It is not, it does not meet the California law to be called this varietal or that varietal, but it is a great wine. It's less than 20 bucks a bottle. And you know what? Uh, 
Hunchback is good. And for that much money, uh, you can experiment with a few of these and, and find some of these lesser, lesser known but excellent wines. You know, you make it sound like sausage. It's like anything that's left over will go will go into this wine, just well, like I, sausage. Whatever it's it's whatever is left over. Yeah, I, I don't think they put toenails and stuff like that in it, Rick. But it's but it's it's essentially that that uh, if they have five or six uh, red wines or uh, red grapes that they're using uh, at that that month, uh, they put them into the wine, and it's pretty good. Okay, Gregor, we're going to cut a day here. Um, I'll talk with you in a better um, in, in the better times in terms of I'll have my second shot. You'll have your second shot. We can go out and you know roll around in the mud together. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and and believe me, um, I'm like everybody else. I'm getting real tired of of uh, being a prisoner. Uh, and uh, it's it's time to let us get out and live. Okay, Greg, signing off, Risk Management Monthly. This is uh, the February 2021 issue. I'll talk with you all next month. Bye for now.